0: In a state of economic depression, in a state of depletion of the resources of our planet
1: because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created.
2: You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is The Truth Perspective. It is March 26th. We are on the Sot Radio Network, and in the studio today, we have Ilan Martin and Corey Schenk. Hi, everyone. Hello. I'm your host for today, Harrison Cayley, and we are going to be talking about the latest news that is all over the news, the terror attacks in Brussels. Now, just to start out with, you know, I mentioned this is all over the news. Any Pretty much any website you go to, any news website, you'll see dozens of articles about it. So it's all over the place. Um, it's just saturating the airwaves. And um, just to give some perspective, there are and have been several terror attacks in countries all over the world in the last several months, that have um, killed just as many people or more that we don't hear about, that don't make the headlines. And in fact, just I believe it was the day after, one or two days after the Brussels attacks, that there was a, a bombing at a football game in Baghdad and where I think it was at least 30 people were killed, a similar number to the, the attacks in Brussels. And I think I saw two headlines on that. So, just something to keep in perspective that that people are, be, are being killed, you know, pretty much almost every day, every week in, in attacks like this. Yes, but they're not
0: white Anglo-Saxon people. Right. And therefore, they don't matter,
2: mm-hmm. or at least not nearly as much. No. But this has been, uh, well, we'll get into this later, but this has been an ongoing thing for years, in fact, like. Decades, uh, I read one article. Um, you know, just kind of taking the mainstream perspective a bit, but pointing out that this is this is what Russia went through for years. Um, you know, what what Europe has has been going through. Um, Russia suffered these kinds of of bombings and terror attacks for for decades, and as we'll see later on in the show, it 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 really is part of the same kind of program. There are there are some really interesting connections to be made between those. But before we get there, let's just talk about the the Brussels attacks a bit. These happened on the 22nd, so four days ago. Um, so from following the news reports, there were three explosions. Three or... Yeah, three. Two at the airport, one at the metro. And so the, I think... Well, around 30, 34, 37 people, something like that, or maybe forty-one. I haven't, I haven't been keeping up on the latest figures. Um, were killed in these attacks, and um, hundreds, hundreds wounded. Um, so very soon after the attacks, of course, it's making the news, and the CCTV footage is apparently leaked. Um, it wasn't the the first instance of it being posted was from a news channel, so it wasn't from the release from the police. Um, a news channel got somehow got a hold of this this still the it's you know famous by now showing the three individuals. There's the two guys dressed in pretty much identical um, costumes, with basically like light kind of khaki pants, a, a black um, sh- jacket, and with one. Le- both of their left hands are, are are gloved with black leather and so they I mean these guys look very suspicious if you just look at it it's kind of like a um, it, it's kind of over the top if you think about it um, I watched a couple of interviews with Sabel Edmonds um, that she's given in the past couple of days on the attacks and she just pointed out I, I agreed with her she she when she first saw it she was like oh this is just ridiculous I mean these guys are um, it, it's 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 so obvious that it looks planned like if if you have a, a real if if they're if if you're part of a terrorist cell and you want to do something you don't make yourself obvious like that right it's like you don't draw the, draw attention to yourselves they should be wearing like chic um, trendy clothing to kind of mix in with the crowd but these guys um, they're uh, what are they called the costume designers or they're what do they call it in the movie business the the wardrobe guys. The, the wardrobe guys is good. Yeah, suffices. Um,
0: CIA wardrobe department.
2: Yeah, and there and and then like an hour after the the picture was released, um the police officially released the picture. So there's some question on how that picture was released. If it was the, you know, some kind of you know airport security personnel that released it. Uh, well, and. Funnily enough, like Joe. Joe, uh, no. Um, yeah, well, we had an article on SOT pointing out the the connection with ICTS, who do, who does security for the airport at Belgium, uh, at Brussels, <clears throat> and this is the Israeli security company that just happened to run security at uh, the airports involved with what was it the the underwear bomber and the shoe bomber, I believe, and so. Who knows? Maybe these guys, um, you know, got the got the clip and released the released the picture. Um, but since then, so there are these th- so apparently three guys at the at the airport and two people at the at the metro. Now, whenever something like this, one of these attacks happens, it's it's kind of it's really hard to know who you can believe and what you can believe that comes out in the news because it's just text on a screen, right? It's hard to unless you have an actual interview with a person, it's hard to know who's saying what, where they're getting their information. Um, the only kind of, well, so far, um, one of the accounts that seems pretty legit to me is that there was um, a taxi driver in in Brussels who um, drove three guys to the airport, and then after he saw the CCTV footage, uh, the, the screenshot, basically, he um, called the police and kind of and told them everything he knew because two of these guys were 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 people that he had driven to the airport. Now, so right right away, I think that this I think that from reading this guy's account it's pretty believable, unless you know I, I can't really think of a good reason why he'd he'd make anything up. So I think we can probably trust what he had to say. But what so what he did have to say is that he picked these guys up at a at an apartment which was later raided. These three guys, they had five like big bags of luggage, and it was too, they were too big to, to fit in his cab, in his taxi. And so he told them, well, you're going to have to leave two behind, and so they were kind of um, unhappy about that, but they left behind two bags. They brought them back up to the apartment and just decided to go with their three bags. Two guys sat in the back of the cab, and one guy sat in the front, and the two guys in the back he identified as the brothers, Khalid and Ibrahim. Uh, but um, oddly, Khalim—they—they are saying was responsible for one of the metro bombs, but he says he drove both of them to the airport. So either the the police account is wrong, or Khalid originally went to the airport and then left um, to to sub- subsequently go to the metro. And the third guy he says was in the front seat. And he said he was really talkative, and the and he was he was ranting on the way to the airport about, uh, I believe about America. He was saying like how bad America was and, uh, how, how bad America is to, to Muslims. And, uh, and then he dropped them off at the airport. Uh, he said that there was like suspicious powder on their bags and, uh, and they didn't really say anything to kind of like, he thought they were kind of suspicious, but they didn't really say anything to, to make it, make him too suspicious. But he, so he dropped them off and then, um, like I said, only after seeing the, the picture of them did he come forward. And so he identified them as the two um, Al-Bakrawi brothers. And the third one, he identified, this is the guy in the picture with uh, the tan jacket and the hat and the glasses. And he identified him as this guy, um, Faisal um, Chefu, Chif, uh, I believe his name was. And this guy was kind of like an independent journalist. He's got some videos on YouTube of him just kind of going around and uh, interviewing people and um, doing some pieces on the, the Muslim community in there. But strangely, this guy, the like before this came out, just in the last 24 hours, um, first of all, the U.S. said that they knew who this guy was. They said, oh, well, we know the guy in that picture, because apparently, I don't know, maybe they... They recognized him from uh, maybe John John McCain recognized him from all the times that they uh, you know that he talked to him on the phone and Skyped with him and uh, you know he's got a lot of pet uh, pen pals in the in the jihadi biz- business so who knows I'm, I'm guessing it was McCain that uh, that identified the guy but they didn't say what his name was and then after that police were saying that they thought that uh, this guy was um, this uh, guy named I think Albrini or something and he was a uh, he was wanted in connection with the, the Paris attacks, and they've been looking for him. I can't remember the exact de- details of who this guy was, but um, but then this taxi driver says, "No, this is this is the guy," and he identified him from photographs. Apparently, so um, just some you know just some details to the, being added into the narrative to to be watched and um, kept in mind as more details come out. Um, it's always interesting, I think, to watch the how the story unfolds, um, what details change and uh, what stay the same. And just to kind of try to get an idea on what can be actually verified or, um, or, you know, just believed as being an actual fact. Uh,
1: it's, it's very difficult. As I mentioned, uh, another detail, it seems pretty pertinent was the fact that these attacks occurred so closely after Salah Abda Salaam's arrest. Mm-hmm. He, uh, you know, the mainstream coverage reports that, you know, this, this man was, he was arrested and he was connected to the Paris attacks and that occurred uh, last November. And, you know, the, the mainstream coverage says that he was, you know, the ISIS fighters decided they had to act now in order to, uh, in order to act before, you know, he released any information that would, you know, real, that would bust their, their mm-hmm. operations. Uh, you know whether that 's true you know in you know if that 's just a narrow truth or part of a much broader truth of you know the real operations that are going on is is hard to say, but it 's definitely a part of the you know the official narrative right now is that they you know they 've started springing their their attacks and, yeah and and i think
0: uh, I think it 's very interesting that they uh, that the arrest happened so uh, close in proximity to, in time to the uh the terrorism in Brussels. It's as though there is th- this uh, connection uh, trying to be uh, projected into the minds of people. Uh, remember the Paris attacks. Uh, so now you have this big news item about the arrest, and then no sooner than we hear that than the attacks in Brussels. So uh, th- this this connection, this uh, this this narrative bite. Uh, gets reproduced for
1: people all over again and reinforced the, and not to mention the the very suspicious nature of the arrest as Harrison wrote about in his article <laughs> about the fact that uh, the police were after this guy and i mean they 've been after him for months right they 've had this huge crackdown and they crack 've been you know allegedly they 've been they 've been hunting him down but uh, they didn't. Tra- they tracked him down, and then he fled. And then they were. Ma- they managed to find him again based on a suspicious pizza order that was placed by a woman in the neighborhood. <laughs> you know, she's yeah. <laughs> she's ordering pizza for thirty jihadis, and the police are on that. You know, like like wild. Well, there's there's an interesting thing with that story, um, it, and it comes back to the Bukrawi brothers because
2: as soon as these guys were named as suspects in the Brussels attack like, what was it, the same day or, you know, within 24 hours, uh, probably less than that, I can't remember exactly. The first reports that came out said that these guys had previous ties to organized crime, um, and those details were later revealed. They were Both of them had been arrested in 2010 and 2011, um, one of them for opening fire, firing on police um, with, a, like, a, an assault rifle, and the other guy... For a carjacking and having a stockpile of assault rifles, he was supposed to get four years. Apparently, he didn't serve his entire four years. He was let out a year or two later, after which he went to Syria, uh, two thousand twelve to two thousand thirteen, and then got back into into Belgium. Um, and but the, so these initial reports said that they were they had been um, previously known as connected to organized crime, but with no known links to, to terrorists. Now, this has subsequently been shown to be a complete lie, for a number of reasons. First of all, the most obvious is that this raid um, on the, that resulted in Abdeslam's arrest. What had happened is that these that the Belgian police had raided a, a, an apartment where they thought, you know, that or that they they thought it was an empty safe house for for this terrorist cell. Uh, you know, I don't know if I believe that, but. They, so they raid this place. They get in a gunfight with one guy, this uh, Belcade guy, who had been previously wanted in connection with the Paris attacks. And two or three other guys were apparently in the in the apartment, but they ran. They got away. They escaped by like um, you know going out the back and jumping on rooftops and and getting away. So these three guys got away. Now when that happened, these three guys got away. And in the news, this was on March. Sixteenth, I believe, six days before the the Brussels attacks, you can read it in the in it's either the Independent or, or the Telegraph had a report on this, and they said that the suspects involved, two of the guys that they believe that were, were running away, were the Bakrawi brothers, and they named them. This was in the, they were in the news a week before this attack. Mm-hmm. Now, if that isn't a tie, a tie to to terrorism, I don't know what is. These guys were not only. Like, they were suspected of being in the place with this guy and with Abdeslam, because Abdeslam was one of the guys that escaped along, you know, after this raid. And they were publicly named as being the suspects of, uh, you know, of of running away from this police raid. They were in the news already. They So that was just ridiculous. Just to finish the story, the they had this raid where the three guys escaped. And then um, they were so... Uh, and they thought that they were pretty sure that one of them was Abdeslam because they they allegedly found his fingerprint um, on a glass in the apartment and some DNA, I don't know, maybe some saliva or something like that, who knows. But then, I believe it was the next day, they were um, checking out this other place that they suspected, this other apartment that they suspected was being used, uh, that was holding a large number of people, they thought, um, so it was suspicious, and so they were they were casing the joint and and kind of watching it. And but then the the final straw was a, a, an unusually large pizza order that was placed from this from this apartment. So the woman that was living either owned or was renting this place made a made a an unusually large pizza order, and they said, "You know, bang, we got them. There's there's people in there." And so they raided the place. They they and they they walk in or they storm in and they see this woman, um, drinking tea with her her two daughters and Abdislam. So I, I mean, just just picture it. I mean, probably munching down on pizza at the same time. <laughs> well, well, everyone knows that the uh, the favorite food
0: of jihadists around the world is pizza. Mm-hmm. And That was uh, a shoe in clue. But um, you know th- this this uh, patsy narrative that we. See this pattern over and over again. Uh, just, I, I mean, it, it it couldn't be more obvious uh, anymore at this time that uh, there is this narrative created in the media, uh, and it's always oh, the the security apparatus, the police. You know, they knew about them, but they weren't tough enough. They weren't assertive enough. They they were just on the cusp. They they were aware of them. They had warnings about them. But, but they didn't quite get to them in time. They just don't have enough power. They, they don't have enough surveillance. The enough one that got so a- let's give them more. The one that got away. Yes. Uh, and, of course, uh, th- this is trying to feed into this uh, idea, you know, problem, reaction, solution. The solution. What's the solution? We have to go after them with even more uh, verve and vigor. We have to imprison more of them. We have to you know, close the borders and, and, and imprison more of them. And, um, and so the takeaway is uh, you know, these narratives are synthetic. They're manufactured. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if this shootout that happened just days prior to the attacks that you mentioned, Harrison, uh, were somehow shaped or, uh, or created uh, precisely for this reason.
1: In order to create this this dynamic rolling narrative, so to speak,
2: yeah, and the and the narrative is always <laughs> the same. It's like they it's like they've got one script and they've just realized which one works, and so they're just reusing it because in all of these cases, in all these attacks in the last years, the guys involved, the suspects that they name, are always pr- previously known to police and intelligence, and have have either been arrested or have some kind of ties with. Um, you know undercover police or or direct ties with like the intelligence agencies and that again that's the case with this one so not only were the Bukrawis, um wanted in connection with this previous raid a week before but um, I believe it was uh, was it? yeah Ibrahim had had gone to Turkey last year in June of last year he arrived there on June 2nd I believe and then he was arrested at the Turkish border with Syria in a, in a routine 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 sweep of the area. And, uh, oh, this guy's suspicious. So the Turks arrest him, um, you know, take his passport, scan it. They, they keep him in, in prison for a month. And then on July, around July 4th, July 5th, or it might have been July 14th, I can't remember, they deport him to the Netherlands. Now, right as they deport him, they give his information and they tell what tell the story to dutch and belgian uh officials so they relate that this guy is a suspected terrorist and of you know suspected of involvement with with uh ISIS because that's because they caught him on the border and they you know you should uh you should keep him in um and you should put him in custody because this is a, a suspicious guy so this and, if, and this didn't come out until a couple days or, you know, a day or two after the attacks and Erdogan and some other Turkish officials um, went public with the story and said, oh, you know, we warned you guys. We told you about him. And then the day after that, the Belgians admit it and say, OK, yeah, you did. And then um, the two of the ministers in, in the Belgian government offered their resignations, um, which were rejected. Um, saying, "Oh yeah, it was just a failure. It was some guy in the in the foreign office. You know, it was it was his fault. You know, he didn't tell us, he didn't pass the information on. So they tried to pass the buck on that. But even if, like, okay, let's just accept that as as being what happened. I got no problem accepting that. the the question, the weird thing, and it's kind of like the uh, well, it's kind of like the the dog that didn't bark. But why was this guy arrested in the first place? You know, why did the, it was the dog that did bark? <laughs> The dog that did bark that shouldn't have barked. Why were the Turks... Uh, why did the Turks arrest this guy and deport him? Same thing with the other Ibrahim um, from the... Um, one of the. Uh, this was Brahim Abdeslam, uh, Salah's brother, who allegedly blew himself up in the Paris attacks. Both of these Brahims were arrested in Turkey and deported. And so were known to, to European intelligence because of this. But the big thing here is that what does, what is Turkey known for? What have they been doing constantly for the past four more, five years? They have been funneling terrorists over the border from Turkey into Syria. It's an, it's basically an open border for these guys. Um, RT just put out, they're coming out with a documentary in the next few weeks, but they put out some details and some documents that they found um, before, uh, before they're going to air the documentary. The, some RT journalists went to the some of the recently liberated towns and villages in northern Syria. These were the places that were that were held by ISIS, but were just taken in the past. Um, um, was it, well, in the past month or two, and so they were there like just ten days after the Syrian army and the national defense forces had liberated these towns, and so they basically found them, you know, in like. Pristine conditions. This was before any kind of cleanup operations, so they go into the official buildings and they just find just documents strewn all over the place. And not only that, they interview some of the uh, ISIS militants who'd been uh, arre- like captured and were in custody, and they interviewed these guys. So first of all, in the documents they found, they found just like meticulous uh, bureaucratic uh, documentation of the oil trade. So they've got the, 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 the number of, of barrels, you know, how much these guys have, what, what truck or what vehicle they're using, how much money they're, they're pay, they, they, it was bought for, how much they're selling it for, um, etc. And then they found these kind of jihadi manuals that were uh, written and printed in Turkey. They've got the address of the publisher on them in, uh, in Turkey. And they interview these guys and so they ask them well how does it work and they say oh well you know we just we come and go from Turkey the Tur- they, they just they, they let us come they don't they don't ask any questions they just let us through well why do they do that oh well because um, they're, they're kind of allied with us because we fight we fight the Kurds so they don't have to so they' they're perfectly fine with us the, you know there's no problem and these, so these guys were just saying that uh, it's it's totally open they have full uh, ability to go to cross the border. So when you think about a guy like, like Bra- Brahim al bakrawi why did he get arrested? Mm-hmm. It's not because he was suspected of terrorism. There's something else going on here. So I wrote in my article that uh, it looks like in cases like this, these guys are they're kind of sheep dipped, just like Lee, Ar- Lee Harvey Oswald with his <laughs> so-called you know anti uh, anti Castro uh, leanings in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. That they are that there is a paper trail created for these guys. <clears throat> so, okay, so Brahim was caught in Turkey. Okay, there's our tie to ISIS. And um now this is the so this is the guy that we can uh, kind of maneuver into this kind of position and and do the do the job that we want him to do. Now of of course, you know, there's so many details, so many um um just aspects of this that that will be impossible to know. We can't know what goes on in this in this kind of world. Um This kind of milieu of of spooks and 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 terrorists, but we can know some kind of some. We can know the kind of general trend, the narrative that gets spun, the um, the dynamics that we see just repeatedly. We can get the kind of big picture. We may not not be able to know all the details, but um, so this is kind of what I think when I see anything like this happen, is that first of all, there's so much. Um, so much that we don 't know, and yet the the media and the the government narrative is always so certain and it presents the presents it as just this this fact this uh this kind of giant fact and the 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 response is there, the correct response that people should have the correct interpretation of these facts but even if a lot or even most of this narrative that gets told is true it can be true but that still leaves that still doesn't tell us everything about what's going on because there are always there's always a bigger context and there are always details that get left out of the narrative that if we knew would totally change the picture actually this reminds me of something that i just watched recently this this dynamic it's about the the twenty eight pages in the joint intelligence report on terrorism in the U S. related to nine eleven, mm-hmm. and so these are these uh, twenty eight pages that got redacted from the it's not the nine eleven commission report, it's the joint intelligence report, and so these have been on the off the books uh, classified for years. But in the last year or two, um, several uh, several congressmen have been able to read it, and actually any congressperson or senator, I believe. Is able to read it, but what they but what they have to do is they have to um, go to a special building and a special in a it might be in Washington, I don't know. But they have to be signed in. They can't take notes. They can't take any kind of photographs. They can just read the documents and then they have to leave. They have to be escorted in and out. Now the few people, the few that have taken the opportunity to actually read this, have said. Uh, well, one of the guys said that you know after every two pages, I had to kind of just stop, and think. And totally rearrange in my head everything I thought about for our foreign policy and terrorism and the, and the attacks on 9/11. Just totally you know, rechange everything, or just change everything. because there is something in these 28 pages that has that capacity. And for, so for these guys, it's not like they were coming out and saying, "Oh, well, I found out that the, that the whole 9/11 Commission report was a total lie. Well, not necessarily. These guys can totally probably still believe every, everything in the 9/11 Commission Report, but it's these extra details that put it put all of that into context, into perspective. And what we like think we know about these 28 pages is that they have to do with the funding for the operations. And some of the statements that these guys have made is that um, several that foreign governments or foreign nations, plural, were involved in this. Now, the speculation has has been that this is about Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And it, it probably is, because there were links with uh, Saudi Arabia and the funding of these terrorists. But it said, um, foreign governments, plural, um, you know, um, what's, how do they put it? Foreign governments, plural, aiding the terrorists, the hijackers, on American soil. So that's kind of what these 28 pages apparently are about, about foreign support... For these terrorist groups on American soil, so while they were in America, now if Saudi Arabia is one country, well, what are the, what is the other country or countries? Now, as I point out in my in my article, I think one of those countries is definitely Israel. <clears throat> how much you know? How much um, information there is in that in that in those twenty pages? It's impossible to say because they're classified, and no one can say what's in them, and no one can read them unless you happen to be a you know, congressman in the U.S. But just this this point about the the wider narrative, or the this greater perspective that puts the previously known facts into perspective, and that's kind of where I think we can go with this. Because, um, well, for ever since the Paris attacks, Belgium has still been in the news because, of course, the the guys that a lot of the guys that were involved apparently in the Paris attacks were fun, from Belgium and Abdeslam had of course driven in driven some of the guys into Paris that night and then driven back that same night and he was photographed at a gas station with uh, with this Albrini guy who was thought to be the third guy in this this CCTV footage from the Brussels attacks and then he'd been in hiding in Belgium for the past four months apparently and there, since then, there have just been tons of raids. Uh, Belgium's been in the news. And the thing that that's, uh, sticks out for me is that Belgium's being called like the jihadi hotbed of Europe, the, the jihadi capital of Europe, that it's a hotbed of extremism and terrorism. And um, so I've just got a little, bit of, uh, little statistic here. Um, according to the Belgian authorities some 380 belgian citizens arrived in syria in order to join isis so three this is 380 belgians that they know of that went to syria now this number this is what makes belgium the most so-called jihadi infiltrated country in the eu the the statistics work out to about 34 militants per 1 million citizens compared to germany 22 militants per 1 million and France 18 per 1 million. Now that's what makes apparently Belgium, the jihadi capital of Europe and the world is these 380 guys that joined ISIS uh, in
1: Syria. These guys who can't be caught <laughs> yeah. despite the fact that they're always caught. <laughs> but,
2: but first of all, there's, well, there's, there's a number of problems with this with this math and just this Mm -hmm. idea because first of all these are 300 guys 400 guys that are in syria for the most part most of them most of these guys are probably still there or dead um we don't have any idea how many have come back and even then 380 so 34 per million compare that with 18 per million in france that's like i mean there's no difference between those numbers really it's the same thing. Like, there's nothing special about Belgium that makes it the Jihadi capital. Um, it's got a few more people that apparently have gone to to Syria. It's just—it's ridiculous to to use those words to call like to mm-hmm. describe Brussels or Belgium in general.
0: Yeah. Well, this is just like you know calling the whole event you know Belgium's nine eleven. I mean, it's you know it's so ridiculous. Uh, but of course, everyone is so terrified by the by the whole thing which is what it's designed to do that any kind of uh, critical thinking on the subject has been uh, it's been diffused um, because most people are buying it. Uh, Of course it's those evil Muslims again. Um, You know And I was thinking about uh, this whole warning that Erdogan had given Brussels not a week before you know, it, it could happen in Brussels, the attack. And uh, it reminded me of a really uh, scary episode of when I was a kid. Uh, my parents had this little boutique in a, in a nice neighborhood. And um, three stores down was a, a fish store. And um, in New York, uh, you have uh, the mafia who um, is in charge of construction and drugs and, and laundering and the fish business. And, uh, as the story goes, one day, uh, some guy from some, uh, mafia group in Queens and Brooklyn came to this fish store, just three stores down from my parents' place and, and said, you know, we'd like a piece of the business. And, uh, and the owner said, no. And, uh, the guy said, it would be a shame if something happened to your place. But the guy refused to give up any part of his business. Anyway, one morning in the wee hours, um, there was an explosion in the fish store. And uh, the whole neighborhood knew uh, that it was the mafia. And and I remember thinking, I remember actually being terrified that, that such a thing could happen. In any case, it's no different. Uh, Erdogan is this uh, he's the Al Capone of the Middle East Uh, and uh, you know his his mentioning the threat of Brussels getting bombed or attacked uh, and then it happening uh, and then basically asking for extortion money from the EU for keeping uh, refugees inside of Turkey is absolutely no different so uh, just just bringing it down to that level
1: um, was kind of a huge reminder of what this dynamic really is, right? And it, it wasn't just Turkey that provided you know warnings to, to Belgium. Russian officials have come out and said that they provided detailed warnings um, that this could happen. And Israeli media has revealed that you know Belgian officials had precise warnings about uh, these attacks occurring, um, but you have. Uh, like you said, this narrative that has come out that is based solely around the fact that you know this is a this is a uh, a Belgian problem because they they are this hotspot of terrorists because you know they they haven't been uh, there there hasn't been a good integration or you know Belgium is a failed state within Europe is you know that's what they're saying now, um, but you know they're completely neglecting uh, some other really critical aspects of the story, um, just you know little minor details that. You know, you wouldn't think would really mean much, um, but, you know, that when you kind of put them together, you know, really, really tell a lot about the story. And considering uh, the the day of the, the bombings at the the EU uh, parliament uh, located there in Brussels, they were meeting. And the, one of the things they were going to discuss was how to coordinate uh, their anti uh Criminal, like mafia type activity. How they were going to coordinate, you know, organized crime uh, to fight organized crime. But then also that day on the twenty second, uh, they were going to meet to talk about the Palestinian uh, human rights situation, and uh, the Palestinian foreign minister was arriving to discuss, you know, basically the apartheid state in Israel. Um, then, of course, you had the attacks that occurred, you know, right there, sending a pretty loud message to everyone in all the elites, you know, everyone who was invited would have been in attendance. And afterwards, you had an Israeli official uh, come out and waste no time in saying that the recent European Union law uh, regarding the labeling of goods produced in Israeli settlements illegally built in the occupied Palestinian West Bank was a big factor behind the bombings. Um, You know, based just like you said, I mean, it's the exact same dynamic. It's the exact. It's the basic. You know, they just come out with a very thinly veiled mask on. You know, you can hear it, and you can hear it in the text on in the articles. You can hear them basically gloating. You know, you can hear. You know, just like Erdogan's. you You know, predicting this attack would occur, and then afterwards saying, "Oh, you know, now we should probably get that safe zone that we wanted in Syria for our terrorist groups, right?" You know that'll solve every problem, right? Plus we another three billion. We just need three billion more euros. <laughs> well, well, just to to give some context on
2: what we're talking about here. I mean, for for regular listeners, I mean, you've heard it all before. But for anyone that might be new to listening to the program or to saw it, there, when you hear Muslim terrorism, it's it's not that simple, really. Muslim terrorism has been a tool of Western intelligence and geopolicy for decades. Um, Now, just to give a little bit of context, I just started reading this book, came out in 2014. It's called Visas for Al-Qaeda, CIA Handouts That Rocked the World. It's by J. Michael Springman. He was a State Department uh, official, a U.S. diplomat. In the '80s, in '83, I believe he was posted to Jeddah in uh, in Saudi Arabia. Now, when he was there, he 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 kind of describes his experience there as being somewhat surreal, just because it was so strange. Like, first of all, he got there and he realized that way more people at the consulate were CIA agents than he'd expected, um, probably higher than average. Because um, CIA always has people kind of embedded with State Department and, um, you know, under cover of being certain kind of officials in the State Department. And that's normal and everyone knows it. But usually it's kind of like maybe one in a three, maybe maybe one in two people are CIA officials or agents or whatever. And but in Jeddah, it was much higher. He according to his statistics he thinks that probably 85% or something were CIA or NSA. There were very few actual State Department people there and when he was there he found he was it was his job to issue visas. Now Jeddah received 45,000 visa applications a year to come for people wanting to come to the United States. This was in the early 80s remember and he found that he would um, refuse a lot of visas because these people were clearly not, Qualified for the visa, they didn't have ties to Saudi Arabia. Maybe they were suspicious. You know, they they might um, they might want to go to the U.S. to to visit some kind of trade show for you know in, in, tied to the Commerce Department. They were going to going to a um, an automobile production you know trade show. And when he asked them, okay, well, what's the name of the company and where's the town where the conference is being held? They couldn't answer. So he'd refuse these visas. Then these guys would say, well, no. Um, I need that visa. And so they'd go and they'd talk to another guy at the, at the, at the consulate and he'd give them the visa. He had a, he had his superiors tell him, no, you have to issue these guys visas. You can't, you know, just, just do it. It was only later, like he had no idea what was going on. It was only later that he realized that this was, this was what he was doing and what the people there were doing were issuing visas to mercenaries to go to the United States to train in order to be sent to Afghanistan to fight the Soviets in the Afghan war. So I just want to read the first paragraph of the book. He says, Al-Qaeda, Arabic for the base, grew out of and became identical with the Arab-Afghan Legion, those terrorists recruited by the United States, the Kingdom the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Originally sent to Afghanistan, they fought the USSR's army and air force following the Soviet Union's invasion of that country. Later, the CIA directed them to cross the border and destabilize the Muslim republics of the Soviet Union. Still later, the American government moved them into the Balkans to destroy Yugoslavia, and then similarly to Iraq, followed by Libya and Syria. They received visas to travel to the United States, usually from Saudi Arabia, for training, debriefing, and other purposes in enabling their, packet, their passage American government officials violated the Immigration and Nationality Act, as well as the State Department's regulations codified in the Foreign Affairs Manual. I know I was there. I issued the, visa, the visas, and I objected to gross violations of law and regulation. As a result, as happens to nearly to nearly all whistleblowers, I was fired. So he goes into the details in this book, but just remember this: that. From 1979, if not earlier, until 2001, Al Qaeda was directed, supported, created by the United States. On 2001, that one day, Al Qaeda was the enemy and acted against the U.S. I know. And then, pretty much as suit pretty much directly <laughs> after that, Al Qaeda was again our our ally. Um, in all these countries and is again today in Syria for example as the al-nusra front and and daesh cuz isis came out of al-Qaeda these are all the same guys they were created they were they were all brought together trained in the 80s and it's just been the same guys you know with new recruits along the way just being shuttled from one country to another and they've done the, the exact same thing in every country afghanistan the southern uh, Republic the, the southern uh, regions and countries around Russia and in
1: Russia Yugoslavia Libya Syria well it sounds like a really similar dynamic to uh, what happened back in uh, the 60s it was with the Bay of Pigs invasion where Cuban exiles uh, you know were they were brought into the states the CIA basically initiated this huge operation to you know topple Castro and to take him out and they the, know you, you know u.s officials were largely unaware of what was going on they'd be asked to uh you know sign off on getting some some doctors uh sent to a specific base you know to help train these uh these exiles but they didn't know what th- was happening this was all the result of a of a secret team you know as al Fletcher prouty uh describes it which is the common denominator here you know throughout the decades you see um you know whether it was in you know with cuban exiles and the the horrifically botched Bay of Pigs uh, incident, which just, you know, could have just been because they were, you know, just so inept and they weren't able to actually pull off the, you know, the airstrikes that they needed in order to actually secure an invasion. And uh, and then you have the, a similar dynamic play out in Belgium's history with uh, the stay behind Gladio network that um, that was British and American and Belgian. Uh, after the fall of the world, uh, or after World War II, um, or during World War II, they created a, an army to to fight the the Nazis, and you know then the CIA got involved afterwards, eventually, and you know basically turned it into their own beast. And it's, you know, up into the 80s, they were, uh, they were carrying out a, a string of, of massacres, basically just to terrorize the people, to get them to accept a right-wing government and to, you know, to uh, basically, you know, just destroy democracy, essentially, to, and to terrify the people into accepting, you know, right-wing, right-wing power. And so these groups... Um, which this, this was under the pretext of fighting communism this was the under the yeah. pretext of fighting the, of the of fighting communism which is what got them out of a lot of legal hassles you know that's what shut down a lot of the investigations was the fact oh you didn't understand what it was like back then you know when all the information started coming out in the 90s when investigators were starting to ask you know during, especially during the barbank massacre um, you know why are there there's these ties to these to the secret army that was left behind, and you had uh, numerous in, uh, investigators come out and look at you know the murderers the um, and especially the investigation itself, which was shut down numerous times. Uh, different uh, paramilitary groups uh, surfaced with ties to Belgian uh, military circles and you know police. They were involved in in financing and being the the active militant arm of this uh, this stay behind network, and you know, from so from 1982 to 1985, the most notorious unsolved crime spree occurred in uh, in Belgium, thanks to these uh, this Operation Gladio. And the reason, really, that it's unsolved officially is because. The, you know, they were basically from on high, from NATO headquarters, which is where Brussels is located, you know, which probably is a significant contributor to the reason they yeah. are a hotbed of terrorist activity. Exactly. Considering all of this this picture that you, you know, you gain about al-Qaeda, you know, all of these submersive mercen- er, subversive mercenaries all working for NATO's, you know, imperial arm. So in a sense... This is where the title for today's show show comes from why Belgium really is
2: a hotbed of extremist terrorists. It's not only a hotbed, it is terrorist. It's the it's the terrorist capital. It's their headquarters. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not in some some little apartment in you know in the in the Muslim neighborhoods of of Brussels. It's it's in NATO and EU headquarters.
0: You know, and and this is not unlike I think getting back to the analogy of 9/11 you know, uh, the planners, the real planners of 9-11 uh, attacking the Pentagon. Uh, except, you know, the difference is that there wasn't any kind of physical attack on the buildings of NATO or, or the EU uh, buildings. But it's right there. Uh, and so it, it's, this, it's this other kind of uh, deflection away from these power centers that are actually in control of, of all of the terror. And, you know, when when you put together um, all of the support that the CIA gave to the Mujahideen and uh, all of these um, mercenaries and people who were fighting in Afghanistan against the, the uh, USSR at the time, and Corey, you went even further back uh, to the 60s. I mean, what we're seeing today uh, is the kind of uh, fruition. It's the, the, the ripening. Of uh, of what was uh, for many many years this very covert war on on the world and democracies and any nation that was um, that dared to be sovereign uh, economically from uh, Western powers and the United States um, and uh, bringing it back to Russia for a moment Russia has has drawn a line in the sand uh, and basically. Um, you know, they're, they're very prudent about it, but they have said, you know, th- this is, you know, you will go no further uh, than Syria. Uh, in fact, Syria is unacceptable, and uh, you can decide to work with us here uh, or not. We will continue to fight. And bit by bit, in spite of themselves, all of their plans, all of their operations, even if it isn't broadcasted in Western media, have become revealed, uh, and people are connecting the dots. So, um, you know, the State Department put out this warning to American citizens for the next 90 days, do not travel to Europe. Uh, there will probably be more attacks in, in public places and sporting events and, and, and all of that sort of thing. And, uh, and so this, this terror war has just
1: gotten ramped up uh, a step further. Right, I mean, you see that uh, that whole strategy of tension, which was what that you know, Operation Gladio was all about, was increasing the emotional tension, uh, making populations more malleable and accepting of you know of strict authority. Uh, you definitely see. I mean, just in the wave of attacks that have occurred, um, you know, in in the West, it, it, you know, it's not nearly as you know the terrorism isn't the as big a threat in the in the West as it is in the Middle East. You know, where terrorists are. Are actually being you know fought head on by you know armies like you know, the Iraqi army, the Syrian army, and you know where towns have had to band together to survive against this huge terrorist menace um, that was created of you know by through Turkey and you know other NATO members um, is you know it's not as big a threat as uh, here in the West it is as it is there. I think that's probably like like maybe one of the biggest points. To deliver,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, objectively, that that's absolutely true. Except that you know, after those attacks in Brussels, you had this mysterious package show up in the airport in Atlanta, where they had to clear the airport. Uh, all these police came in uh, to check things out, and uh, of course, it was nothing. Uh, some similar event happened um, in the airport at Denver, Colorado, in the U.S. Uh, uh, Toulouse I was, in France. Toulouse in France. I mean, so uh, you know, the 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 uh, the chill, uh, the the terror gets uh, gets broadcasted, and and the reverberations of it are felt uh, internationally, which is which of course is the idea. Uh, these attacks serve multiple purposes. Um, you know, in addition to uh, kind of pushing along any laws that certain countries have to further cut down on civil liberties and travel. Um, it's also serving, uh, you know, a little earlier, Corey, you mentioned putting the, the chill on all of these EU bureaucrats in Brussels. I mean, the, the, the Metro and the airport uh, that were attacked, this is where these guys travel to uh, from their respective countries. So, if they have any kind of resistance to, um, you know, uh, not going along with the, the, the cutting down of or the cutting back of the Schengen agreement, or um, or keeping uh, refugees out of Europe, or not paying off Erdogan another three or six billion dollars, or uh, not putting sanctions and not furthering sanctions against Russia. Uh, this is their this is their big kind of subconscious warning to them, uh, you know, it, you know we'll get you where you live or where you travel, um, and and we've just killed almost forty people and injured another three hundred to do it. So, you know,
1: follow the script. Well, another strange aspect of you know this of what's going on in Brussels right now is uh, just reports out this morning that there was a, a, a security guard at a nuclear power plant uh, was uh, found uh, murdered. Uh, in the initial reports, it was that he was uh, murdered and his clearance card that gains access to the nuclear power plant was stolen. Um, then subsequent reports have come out and denied that a that – there was a, that the security card was stolen. Um, but yes, this man was found, you know, murdered. But it's no connection whatsoever to any of the, the in, to the spree of terror attacks, which is just strange considering the fact that um, the media has been publishing these reports that the these uh, terrorist masterminds were planning attacks on nuclear power plants. The Belgian nuclear power plants have an awful awful history of being uh of basically being infiltrated by jihadis or you know jihadi defectors who decide that um you know they're they're working for the nuclear power plant then they go to you know they become radicalized, they go to Syria, they fight and then they come back to you know to come back to Belgium and are arrested, convicted on terrorism charges, and then are freed. Um, you know, just basically just Right, you know, turn right around and they're and they're they're back out again. So there's this obviously there's a huge mess going on in the power plant um, industry there. You know, that's allowed for a lot of infiltration and a lot of uh, a lot of huge hijinks have have occurred there too. People have been able to turn off the the power plants, shut them down for months on end. And so then you know you have this incident occur with the the murder of a security guard and the loss of his secu- of his card potentially, and and then the the media then immediately the prosecutor comes right out and said, and denies any sort of you know co- uh, connection to the crime, um, to the attacks. So it's it just seems right now that there's uh, that Brussels is at this point of. Um, of just uh, like nobody knows exactly what is is going on you know there's uh it's still under attack and it's they're trying to keep this dynamic going to try and increase the tension increase the fear increase the hysteria to get people primed thinking that there could be this nuclear catastrophe or maybe there won't be a nuclear catastrophe if there's murders but there's not they're not connected the whole thing seems like it's at that point where it, um you know they're they're really pushing to to just uh really get that trans inhibition locked in. Well, you know, it's uh,
0: it's been a very interesting week um, because there have been a lot of uh, statements made around the world, uh, a lot of attitudes revealed. Um, in Russia especially, uh, recently there was a, um, a press conference uh, made with Russia's... Um, uh, media representative, Maria Zakharova. uh, And uh, we're probably pretty familiar with her by now. Um, She has been one of the spearheads in kind of um, responding to a lot of uh, misinformation and lies about Russia uh, in recent months. Uh, She's a a pretty, um, she's a very intelligent, uh, passionate person and uh, doesn't kind of separate her, um, her analysis uh, sometimes with her own feelings on the subject, even if she's a very professional uh, representative. Um, so this was covered in RT. Uh, she mentioned a Russian asking her, uh, why did you work so hard? It wasn't us who suffered from the explosions in Brussels. What do you mean, she said, startled. I mean, how long are you going to sympathize with them since they don't care about us when we have terror attacks in our country? Usually they just make fun of us. Aren't you fed up with that? And she writes about how, how shocked she was um, by this uh, by this reaction. Um, and in one sense, it's kind of understandable. You know, people are fed up with uh, all the lies that are being told about russia about their people about what's been happening to them um and yet she's kind of saved a place in herself for genuine empathy uh for others still in the face of of all of the lies and it's not like she doesn't uh hurt um it's not like she isn't annoyed or upset by the lies uh, but uh, she says a couple of interesting things in response um to to these questions that she's been getting from Russians. Um, She says, I was shocked and started to say publicly and with increasing emphasis, we extend our sincere condolences, words of encouragement to those. It's our common tragedy. We need to join forces. It's important to understand the root of causes. And uh, she goes on to say that, Of course, it's my job to answer questions from the media, but that's not the point. It was hard for me to accept that people were beginning to sidestep the issue, but also tired of the world ignoring our Russian tragedies and catastrophes. Waiting for my turn on air, I read various comments, with some some of them desperate. They never sympathize with us, so why should we sympathize with them? And, um, you know, she goes on to mention the... uh, the attack in Beslan, uh, that was the school in North Ossetia in September 1st, 2004, where 333 people were killed, 186 of them children. And, um, you know, so she realizes that that, that the West has largely been um, unsympathetic to Russian tragedy. Uh, but what she does say is, it's our common tragedy. We call upon everyone to join forces. We mustn't justify terror attacks in one region and criticize them in another. There are no good or bad terrorists. We need to restart the cooperation that was blocked by our partners. Russian officials unequivocally condemned the attacks and sent condolences. They could not have done otherwise. Um, so just a, just a kind of fine example uh, of a person in the media in politics on the international stage who has the right idea uh you know she can't be so embittered um by mm-hmm. uh all the lies that she's lost sight of the fact that these are really horrible events that that affect a lot of innocent people uh and she's not trying to politicize it she's just uh speaking from her heart
1: it seems and you know and just uh to- In contrast, I think, I believe in that same story, it talks about the, was it Radio Liberty that had published an article stating that she was gloating over the attacks, Uh, you know, and I think that people have probably seen a lot of uh, headlines, you know, if they've been reading the news about, um, you know, various Western commentators just pronouncing that Russia could have had some, played some role in this, that this was part of some sort of hybrid warfare campaign waged by Russia, but like you said, um, you know, she she calls that out and she even she says, you know, that she felt sullied by by those accusations, uh, because obviously the fact is that she is very um, she was very compassionate and outspoken in her uh, her support for the for the victims of the tragedy. And it is, you know, it's a tragedy wherever it occurs, whether it's Iraq or Libya or Belgium or France. you know, And it's the civilians, the civilian populations which are targeted and it's it, it's an, it's, an, it's an unspeakable tragedy every time it occurs
2: and i think that response that that emotion and that want that wish for justice is is very good and healthy i think and 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 we see it like we saw it after paris and, and now after the belgium attacks and i mean i don't think you can you can blame everyone having this kind of selective empathy i mean they are just products of of this media society they respond to what's in front of them and so we don't hear about the the attacks in baghdad or aleppo or or damascus or raqqa or or all over libya we don't hear it if people did hear about it they would have an emotional response i think at least a lot of people would and the feeling of, and that desire for justice is still there, but it's directed. All of these things are directed. People's emotions, all of them, are directed in a specific, um, on a specific vector to the in the direction that the the people running the news want it to go. Mm-hmm. But I think that the that no matter you know after all these tra- all these tragedies, they are tragedies, and they should get people upset. People should be upset about it. But the thing is, people should think a little bit along with those emotions. Because I, for one, want nothing more than for the criminals responsible for these attacks to be found and for justice to be brought. Mm -hmm. I would like to see all these people in prison. The thing is, the guys that get arrested and the guys that get blamed, they're middlemen. They're the people at the bottom of the food chain Mm -hmm. in this, in what's going on. They are not the people planning these operations, even if you think that there's like... ISIS masterminds like uh, Abaoud in the in the Paris attacks, there's always, even if that's true, there's always someone above them. And especially when you think about the big picture of this Operation Gladio and what's really going on, there are people above directing these things that know that they're going on, and these people are being used. So, yeah, the, whoever's involved should be arrested, but there are so many people involved who are not not arrested and will never be arrested because they're just... No one's looking for them. No one cares. Everyone's going along with the program. Now, so I think, you know, I just think, you know, in an ideal world, there should be massive investigations into all of these attacks. And we could find out the truth. It is possible. But it just doesn't happen. There's not enough public support or public awareness. And I even think that a lot of people in these governments and in these, in the police, in all these countries would get on, could get on board with that if they were able to get over you know, their own programming or to gain enough support around them. I mean, we have a lot of, more than people think, we have a number of whistleblowers who have been involved in all these things who have come forward just disgusted at what they've seen going on in these institutions. And it goes back to 9-11. We've, and, and just like a, this Michael Springman guy that I quoted from his book, he was involved in this, and when he found out about it, he was angry. He was pissed off. Because he, like, inadvertently, he and the people he was involved with and worked with were responsible for terrorism, for murder, for torture, rape. That's what's going on. And so, I mean, I I still think that even though it's been 15 years almost, going on 15 years since 9-11, I still think that it would be worthwhile to have a real investigation into 9-11. Because there's so much about 9-11 that not only that we don't know about that hasn't been made public, that it is so relevant to what's going on today. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of, if we were to, able to find who was really responsible for nine 11, like get the names, a lot of those people would be um, probably, probably directly involved in what's been going on for the past 15 years. And, well,
1: Oh, uh, no, go ahead, Corey. Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, the, you know, that kind of falls under that hole that, that idea that anybody who questions the official theory is, you know, some sort of a conspiracy theorist or deranged or, or crazy, you know, people who, who question, you know, what's going on or who would like to see an investigation are somehow off. You know, I think that that whole entire idea, I mean, so like everybody deep down needs to just kick that to the curb, you know, in order for anything to ever be able to, um, to manifest in, you know, in society. I mean, just, and as you were saying, the Harrison about the the people who you know who actually are in power, who and officials who you know would have a heart or who would be you know who would actually like to see justice, you know, called in to play. I think that you know, nine eleven was effectively a huge coup d'état against all of those um, those people. I mean, it was just such it was just this epic uh, destruction of of justice on such a massive, wide scale, you know, on such a global scale, such a betrayal of, you know, humans coming together, you know, during a time of grieving um, and this destruction of the justice system, no investigation, you know, the, you know, investigation trial by media. I remember just today I was reading an article on September 12th, you know, 2001, uh, the I believe it was in the Washington Post or the New York Times, uh, you know, it was uh, basically, you know, the, uh, the author said, "Okay, so Saddam Hussein and Yasser Arafat and Osama bin Laden did this. So now, what are we going to do?" <laughs> that was it. That was that was the entire. You know, that was everybody had all this uh, energy. They wanted to do something. They wanted justice, and there it was the the quick and easy answer. And you know, the destruction. You know, of the the Pentagon and the deaths of so many um, individuals there working. I was just reading today that uh, the that the the Office of Naval Intelligence was investigating um, the plundering of Russia at that time. 39 of, of 40 uh, individuals were investigating that mm-hmm. to try and get to the bottom mm-hmm. and tr- to probably try and find some form of justice for, um, to fight this you know, financial destruction that's been going ag- around the globe. And of the 40 individuals who were investigating that, 39 uh, were killed, including the entire chain of command. Um uh, so, I mean, that just goes to show what these individuals who are, you know, pushing this agenda, what they are, what they, I mean, what they're capable of, what they did on 9-11 and how that set, you know, basically pruned such a significant portion of of, of our, um, you know, honest and, and decent officials. Well, um, just for a moment,
0: I wanted to get back to some of the other things that have been uh, stated around the world uh, on the subject of uh, the Brussels attacks. Um, in Israel, the, there was a kind of a predictable response. I think uh, Netanyahu gave a kind of um, video conference message to AIPAC uh, in Washington, um, which is a whole other uh, horror show. Uh, AIPAC had their annual or biannual meeting last weekend and uh, of course he uh, you know he kind of phoned in and and uh, and gave his you know condolences sort of uh, to Brussels and talked again about uh, terror and and uh, you know the whole world is Israel um, you know, one of the leaders of Israel said that uh, the terrorism of extremist Islam strikes all those who do not accept its authority uh, so there was a lot of putting... Uh, the Brussels attacks, into this kind of um, we are all Israel now type perspective. And um, the uh, opposition leader, uh, Isaac Herzog of Israel, said, enough already. Stop this contemptible talk. Where did you get the chutzpah to degrade innocent victims of terror? Where do you get this miserable cynicism from? This is a distortion of the most basic human morality. This is a painful moment internationally that obliges all people to identify with the bereaved families, whoever they are, and wish the wounded a speedy recovery so you know w- once again uh, uh, a rare but um, but kind of uh, truthful uh, conscience filled uh, voice in the in the chorus of dark cynical stupid comments we're getting from all these people around the world, including a a U.S. representative, uh, um, Nunez, who at one point said, um, you know, I I think I think the attack in Brussels was really aimed at America, Uh, you know, you know, it's because because there are Americans in Brussels, you know, uh, it's it's this, uh, you know, further justification to to make it all about them. Uh, To make it all about the war. The war on terror goes on. Um, And it's sickening. Um, And on the subject of. Attitudes and feelings. And. How we might. Come to process this information. um, As many of you may know. We have a. uh, A sought forum. Where. uh, We have a lot of threads on. On a lot of different subjects. Including events like the recent attack in Brussels, and I just wanted to read what one individual wrote to the thread recently and um, and see if we can't come to a uh, uh, an answer to his, uh, his assessment. He wrote, I just wanted to share that I feel really, really numb regarding this event. I don't even want to follow the news. I don't want to think about it at all. I even have a hard time feeling compassion for the victims. Maybe because I just don't think about it. All that is just so sickening. I think others said it already, but it's so terrible that people just don't see the pattern and what's going on there. It's just the evil Muslims. Never mind the police tear-gassed protesters in France just yesterday. Never mind the wars abroad. Never mind the obvious hysteria in the media. Isn't it obvious where the real terrorists are, regardless of the details of this or that Muslim terror attack? Really, it's weird, but I just don't want to look right now. I want to focus on the beautiful aspects of life, on good people, on ordinary stuff. I know I can't and don't want to shut out the world, and I know that the mess is only going to get bigger and closer, but that's just how I feel right now thanks everyone for your courage to look the beast in the eye and share all this information about this event here and on Sat. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's understandable. Um, these are really horrific, huge things that we're seeing happening with more regularity and with more viciousness. And, uh, I think part of what's helpful is is to understand the dynamics involved in, in these types of tragedies and, uh, and in doing so um, not to shut it out or, uh, or keep it at bay but at the very least uh, what we're able to do in, in seeing the patterns and recognizing things as they are Uh, is to direct our anger and our anguish um, in the right direction. Um, And I don't think we can always um, fully process what we're seeing at that time. Uh, But I do think that at times um, we do need to give ourselves a little uh, sadness uh, or whatever it is that, would feel natural and human to feel about learning that a a number of innocent people have just lost their lives in a horrible way just because there's a network of psychopaths that want to rule the world. Um, I don't know. Do you guys have any other thoughts about this,
1: about this comment? I think that is an incredibly courageous and honest comment i you know I think a lot of people probably feel that way, you know some level of of numbness because of how terrifying and disgusting and and vulnerable you know it, it makes you you feel knowing that you know no one's safe that these people who promise you security if you just give them more power and more you know money more funding that you know they just the next you know two months later turn around and boom they let somebody kill. You know, you know, thirty people, um, you know, innocent people who are just, uh, you know, living their life and going to work and coming back from school, or whatever they're doing. Um, you know, I think that it's an incredibly it's just a normal human response, and the, you know, to the to the terror, and also that by facing that terror, I mean it's it's there is a you know it's a form of inoculation against it against what could only be called evil. Um, because that's what it is. It's just it's pure evil. And, you know, we as a people, you know, just worldwide, it's very, very difficult for us to believe that there's someone out there who could be so consciously evil that mm-hmm. they would organize things like this, they would make a living doing things like this. And yet the only way that we can ever come to understand that really is to wa- is to see is to learn as much as we can and to watch it to really face that, that awful that awful reality that's in front of us that just keeps growing day by day. And there, it's just like, you know, Naomi Klein writes about in the shock doctrine where she hoped that, you know, entire nations of people like in South America would become resistant uh, to the shocks um, imposed on them by, you know, their, you know, the elites, the financial capitalists and the people who just prey on the vulnerable and the weak. I don't know if you become resistant. You know, I don't think, I don't know if you ever become resistant to it. Um, but, I think that you do get reach a point where um where the knowledge and the awareness itself gives you hope and strength to carry on to carry through it, and so that someday when if you are ever you know i mean if you ever need to call on that kind of strength um to help someone in whatever situation you're in it it is you know you can be that hope and that strength for someone else, too. I, I th- so I think that it's great that that person shared that comment because a lot of people have to feel that. Yeah, uh, like you said, Corey,
0: I mean, this was actually a very courageous and honest thing to say. And um, what what this person has done for himself and for maybe others who he's sharing it with uh, is, um, you know, once you can acknowledge those emotions uh, and that type of thinking in yourself, I think then you you allow yourself to uh, grow from it and and enable yourself to make the distinction between numbness and and what may be true empathy and and shock and grief and horror at these events uh, when you're experiencing those things, when you've allowed yourself to go there. Um, you know it's like it's just self-knowledge. Um and you know we can go over all the facts and the patterns and the news and and uh, and the history um but I think it's just as important to pay attention to uh, our thoughts and and feelings as we process this information and uh not separate the uh, the, the the dry facts of the matter and the truth from. Uh, our part in living in this world with these facts and, and how we may be feeling and dealing with them as a reality. Um, and I, I totally understand him, uh, this writer. Um, you know, uh, we process a lot of information, um, editing for SOT and publishing articles and looking at a lot of things. And, uh, sometimes it's very hard and, and, uh, but you don't want to go into this kind of place in your brain. That's, that's, you know, that's too separate from, uh, th- this reality that we're looking at and sharing and commenting on. Um, or, you know, it would just be an exercise and kind of mechanical being and, and not really, uh, living with the truth of these things in a way that, um, is meaningful.
2: Yeah, it's. I get. I, get, I often get like visuals. I, sometimes I think in terms of pictures, and the picture that, that comes to mind is one of kind of shutting off, where you find yourself in a in a, in an enclosed cell. You know, no door out, and all you've got are the are TV screens around you showing all the horror and and uh, um, just the reality of of how nasty life is. And then just shutting off and letting it all just, you know, just watching it in this inert state and just kind of drowning in it. And I think if you find yourself in that like, metaphorical position, then one thing that might help is to, to tell yourself, okay, well, that's really what the people responsible for all of this would want from me. Because all this is designed to shut people off in some ways. Because when you're shut off, then nothing gets done about it and these people can continue to do what they do. Anytime, like, well, I think about um, movies I've watched, stories I've heard, um, stories I've read about even just like a, a single murder. I mean, there are tons of mu- movies about murders and their investigations. But when someone gets murdered, let's take just movies, let's get a little bit of distance. When somebody gets, gets murdered in a movie, what's the, what are some of the responses that, that the characters have? Well, of course, there's, all, there's often like the detective that's come, that comes in to investigate it. Or you might get the family member, um, and there are various different responses. Some of them can just shut off and be depressed, and, and that's a normal response. It's, it's, it's normal to shut off for a while. But I think that whenever there's an, an injustice like that done, a crime... That there's something about, about us as humans, about people with conscience, who want to know, first of all, the truth about the situation. That prompts an investigation. And that can be a personal investigation if the cops aren't doing anything. I mean, there are families and, and uh, people involved in crimes like this who take it upon themselves to, to investigate. We see this with some of the 9-11 families, for example, the people for the people who have, that were killed on 9-11. They realize that the, the officials weren't doing anything about it, really, and so they've kind of got on board with the so-called truth movement, but we see it in you know any on any scale of crime. But I, th- but there, so I think that there's this this aspect of action that needs to be taken, in order because and that comes back to like purpose, because humans we need a purpose to live for, and that purpose kind of determines what what kind of people we are and in, in the behaviors that we take and the actions that we take in our lives. And so, for me personally, when I'm confronted by, by a tragedy like this, on any level, I want to know the truth, first of all. Mm-hmm. And that prompts a, a kind of like a, an inward activity in the sense that I'm searching for stuff, I'm looking for the information. I'm not putting it out there at this point yet, I'm just, I'm taking it all in. But that, if, it, if the process ends there, nothing good comes out of it. I might know something, but what does that do? the next step is of course to share that and not only just to share it then, but to share the process with, with other people along the whole way to, to first of all, be like an investigative body. That's why I like the movie, the spotlight about the investigations that the, um, that were done into the, the Catholic pedophile priest scandal in the, I believe it was, was the late eighties, early nineties, something like that. I can't remember, but, um, just this, you know, you have a group of people all looking to, all, all, investigating, looking, trying to find the truth about something. There's that group aspect. You've got a purpose, and then you you do something active. You put it out into the world, and that's what I think really, that's what keeps keeps me going is actually doing something. I mean, part doing this radio show is one of them. It's something that I can do for other people, and it's that gets me out of the box. You know, surrounded by the TV screens, just just drowning in all this misery and bloodshed and so i i just think that, that like for me personally i try to keep that in mind and i think it would, it might help other people to keep that in mind that no matter how how horrible things can be in your own personal life or in, just in the general general world around you even if your own life is pretty good comparatively is to have some kind of like purpose that guides you and lets you actually do something because humans need to do something. We're not designed just to be couch potatoes. <laughs> you see where that leads.
1: So well yeah, I think there's, you know, there's awfully there's evil out there in the world. And but then there's I mean, just because there's evil doesn't mean there's no such thing as, as good. You know, and I think that's what I that's what you're talking about is that you are you're focusing on that. You're able to, even though you know that the evil exists, you're still trying to do good you're still trying to do good you just as long as you're trying to do that and trying to enhance that part of the world you know that's that's the challenge and that's it's a funny it's a funny
2: strange dynamic because when people see all this evil it's like you go oh my god the words the world's so evil there's no good in the world well it's like well uh, okay so there's no good in the world well what's what's the obvious like answer to that it's to be that good in the world for you to do it. It's like, well, no one else is being good. You know, screw all of them. Um, you know, and well, so do it. Do it for yourself.
0: Absolutely. You know, I was on YouTube the other day, um, looking at uh, videos of various things, and uh, you know, as we know about YouTube, it's got a lot of um, it's got a lot of crap on it. Of course, tidbits, news, a lot of noise. But uh, there's also an incredible number of people who are making their own documentaries, who are, uh, who are being creative about, um, you know, talking about anything from, uh, you know, the destruction of, of the Pacific uh, with Fukushima to uh, various, um, uh, you know, the, the sex trade in, in, in Asia. I mean, all manner of things. And uh, you know, so if if you do have a question about what's good in the world, uh or um or, or whether or not there are people out there who care, uh there is just a huge number of people who do care, uh, I think, and it's evidenced in the amount of information that is being put out there by people on their own, uh, who don't belong even to a media organization or or to uh, any kind of uh, funded um, organization, they're just doing it because they think it's important. It gives them purpose, uh, and they're sharing it, and they're doing it for themselves as well. Um, and I think that's the thing about news and information and and getting at the truth of these stories. Um, it is a kind of a two way process. We, you know, we're not really uh, I don't think we're growing very much as individuals when we we only keep it to ourselves. Uh, knowledge is a two way street, you know. We're we're getting it from somewhere. Someone's written that book. A singer wrote that book about visas and Al Qaeda. Uh, you know, um, Pepe Escobar wrote that article about jihadis in, in Brussels. Uh, so we share it and comment on it and process it and make connections. Uh, between that and other things. And um, maybe if folks are feeling the way that that writer did on the Sot forum, uh, maybe it would be helpful to um, to work a little more in that direction if they're feeling that way.
1: Um, yeah. Uh, right. So I like, guess you're reading the headlines and – um, you know, you see all of this stuff that's programmed to terrify you, you know, that ISIS is, um, claiming they're going to attack England or they're going to attack London or, you know, that there's going to be attacks on the power stations or, or whatever. Um, yeah, it's just important to keep that in mind that, you know, that's all there just to terrify you and to keep you submissive and to keep you from doing what you, uh, what you want to do in your life. Um, so yeah, that said, you know, there's, uh. You know, from the outcomes of the uh, from the attacks so far, it looks like the U.S. is uh, you know requesting that Belgium uh, bomb Syria, uh, since you know Russia already had, you know pretty much kicked ISIS's butt there, so might as well go bomb Syria. And Turkey's requesting for a a safe zone in in Syria, and Israel's uh, blaming uh, Europe for the the tragedies, and NATO's blaming Russia and. Uh, nothing's really getting done but that's pretty much i think what we all expect at at this point there's just it's going to be more it's more of the same from when these tragedies occurred
2: well but going off on that and coming back to the to an example of you know something that's kind of good in the world um well it's it's kind of it's 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 well, i don't even know the word to describe it it's funny that this is a sign of what's good in the world because it just shows how bad the the general situation is. But the Syrian army and several of the the militias that they're associated with and the Russians are currently and have been um, launching an offensive on the ancient city and the modern city of Palmyra in Syria. This was taken by ISIS about a year ago, uh, May of last year, I believe. And so they've been launching this offensive, and they've just been going through and uh, haven't fully taken it yet, but there's pretty much no doubt that they will fully take it. And um, so, I mean, this is a, a kind of action, right, because for years this civil war, well, not a civil war, this war in Syria has been going on, and the U.S. has been presenting itself as kind of the only force doing anything about it, when in fact they've been doing nothing, and in reality they've been just making it worse and stoking the fires of the conflict. So, since the the Russians came to the Syrian government's aid with their airstrikes on September thirtieth of, of last year, up until um, the partial withdrawal of Russian forces, and these last uh, few weeks of the kind the um, the offensives against ISIS. In Syria, um, the Syrians have taken back like 400 towns and villages, something like I don't know, 20,000 square kilometers worth of territory, or something, 40,000, something like that. And so, this so situations can turn around. And um, I just I look at examples like this. You know, even as hor- as horrifying as they are, these are war examples. These are they're they're founded on death. And and yet something something good will come out of this and and has come out of this several. I mean, just look at the 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 Syrians on the ground today who are now just in the past couple months getting the the first humanitarian aid that they've been able to get in years and who are able to return to their homes. And look at ISIS getting their asses whooped. (laughs) No thanks to the United States. And this is this. I watched a video a few days ago of Mark Toner, you know, the guy, I think, is he he State Department? I can't remember, but he's one of the spokespeople for the U.S. that just makes asinine comments for a living. And one of the journalists there, it wasn't even Matt Lee or the RT journalist, someone else, (laughs) kind of put him on the spot and said, okay, well, you know, Russia's helping out Syria. Syria's about to take Palmyra. Um... And he phrased it in, in something like this. I can't remember exactly what he said. Okay, well, so would you would you rather have ISIS in control of of Palmyra or Syria, like the uh, Assad, basically? And the guy just couldn't bring himself to say that it was better if Assad and the Syrians t- retook control of Palmyra.
1: Right, he just laughed as though you know he was getting. Given a, a trick question, he was like, "Oh, so you think you can put? Huh? But he couldn't say it." Well, can- and, and the reporter said, uh, "You're
0: not answering my question," and he said, "I know, but I I would like to take a a more broad view of the entire situation," and uh, it just kind of revealed this commitment to uh, ousting Assad for political reasons, and, and it's just a, this kind of perfect example. Of Of how uh, wrongheaded uh, the u s government and administration and, and and folks at the Pentagon are about the entire thing um, so i I saw that too just this morning Harrison and uh, it it was just you know it was almost hilarious if it wasn 't so pathetic
2: yeah, but meanwhile there's these like non entities like Mark Toner saying these things, but on the ground, the Syrians are retaking palmyra so it's like screw toner you know he doesn't matter in the big scheme of things it's like he he's he's nothing he's just some guy talking on the other side of the world on the side of the globe and meanwhile if you just if you're interested and you watch the news there you know despite toner's just non-entitiness and his totally asinine comments palmyra is being retaken so there i mean that's all i gotta say about that so
0: one of the things you said was that, you know, there there is hope uh being given in the actions of Russia and Syria and uh and Syria's kind of retaking the four hundred towns and, and really kicking ISIS's butt. And uh, you know, I have to wonder in the coming months, given all the information that, that is coming out about Turkey funding ISIS and mm-hmm. and uh and all sorts of other things that paint this uh much much more horrific picture of what our world really is and is doing, you know, what, what will be the tipping point in people's perceptions of, of uh, the U.S. government and Western powers in particular and Israel? Will there be a tipping point? Will there be something, uh, will there be some uh, event that will uh, kind of unequivocally um, affect people's perceptions of, of
1: how things are in the world. Will they go just too far? Will they? Will they say just the wrong thing at the wrong time? I don't know. I mean, that's a that's the million dollar question right there. It'd be nice to. It'd be really nice to see, to see a tipping point.
2: I think we see like many tipping points all the time. Um, I don't know if we'll ever get the kind of mass tipping point where the entire world knows the truth, but. I'm. I mean, I'm pleased every time I see a new revelation about, you know, exposing Saudi Arabia or Turkey or the, or the United States. I mean, the things. The, there's enough out there for people, and so I mean, I I hold on to the 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 hope, however misguided it might be, that there'll you know there'll be that moment, right, and that that one piece of information or that one press conference that blows the lid on it all. But uh, I mean, I I think I've just gotten to the point of being happy with the little. The, the dribble of truth. The little things,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's all we can yeah, We can hope, but we,
2: <laughs> we can't go too far with it. Well, well it's one of those wait-and-see situations because uh, things are kind of – things are always coming to a head. But um, with this uh, – well, there's all kinds of stuff going on in the world in the past few months and in the kind of hot zones of conflict – like there's this ceasefire that's kind of being talked about in Yemen. It's planned to be institute that's planned to go into effect in early April. We'll see about that and, uh, but the situation in Ukraine is kind of flaring up a bit at the same time um, and then we've got these Geneva negotiations about Syria going on and so it's a whole bunch of stuff to juggle but um, I'm just sitting back and watching the show and I think that's all we can do at this point. Yeah. Unless anyone, do we have any other stories we wanted to cover or no? No. Okay. Then I think we're going to end it there folks. Um, yeah. So thanks for tuning in and, and just as a reminder, you know, we didn't have any calls today, but, um, you can call in at any time. If you don't see the speak with the host button, um, right now next, right there next to the stream, you can just refresh your page and it should appear. Um, And then, yeah, we'd like to hear from you, like to talk. So maybe next week, call in. And we don't know what we're going to be talking about next week yet, but uh, whatever it is, it'll be awesome.
1: (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Take Take care. care.